Chapter Thirteen of The Mentor Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tavarish. The Mentor Two by Various. Among the Ruins of Rome by George Willis Botsford, Professor of History, Columbia University, Author of The Story of Rome. A HISTORY OF ROME Shortly after sunset, the express train, speeding north from Naples, emerges from the mountains and begins winding its way down grade. The expectant visitor to the Eternal City sees below him through the car window a broad expanse of plain sloping imperceptibly on the left to the sea, in front to the Tiber River. It is an ocean of green, here quietly level, there billowed in ridges or headed up in round hillocks. Emperor Claudius. This is the Campania, the broad flat belt which borders the Tiber on the left. At first sight it reveals to us its solitude. In early Roman times it had swarmed with peasants who owned the lands they tilled. As the city grew wealthy, the district fell into the hands of lords who covered it with their luxurious villas peopled by multitudes of slaves. Still later, when Rome was declining, these villas fell to ruins, the slaves disappeared, and malaria stalked lonely and terrible over the beautiful country she had made her own. Even now she rules it, scarcely weakened by modern progress. The dwellings of her few wretched tenants are miles apart. Herds of sheep and of fierce long-horned cattle pasture on the abundant grass and along the well-made roads that span the plain an occasional ox-team wearily drags an awkward cart. The Temple of Castor and Pollux The ruins of this famous temple stand in the Forum, but the Campania has its attractions. It fascinates imaginative tourists and draws them to its heart. Three or four together, their knapsacks filled with food and drink, often take long trips through this wild region, whose eternal quiet speaks peace to the weary mind, whose delicate ever-changing tints of sky and field appeal to the taste for natural beauty, whose ruined villas and towns awaken historical memories of the rise of Rome from a little settlement on the Tiber to a worldwide power and a fame that cannot die. The Appian Way The most impressive features of the Campania as we view it from the car window or in a stroll along either the old Appian Way or the modern Appian Way are the ruins of aqueducts. The one here illustrated is the Claudia, named after Emperor Claudius, who completed it. Its sources were more than 40 miles distant. While crossing the Campania, the water flowed in a channel supported by a series of gigantic arches. It provided Rome not only with her best water, but her most abundant supply, amounting to more than 400,000 cubic meters daily. 
all the aqueducts together poured into the city each day more fresh water than the Tiber now empties into the sea. As we view this work of great utility, we naturally wonder what sort of man was the builder. At the time of his accession, he was fifty years old and had devoted his earlier life zealously to study and writing. Grotesque in manner and eccentric in his habits, he was generally considered a learned fool, and yet he made an admirable ruler. When acting as judge, he often slept during the pleas of the lawyers, waking at the close of the trial to give his decision in an equitable and humane spirit. It was unfortunate for the case, however, if he chanced to smell anything good cooking in a neighboring restaurant, for he would adjourn court to refresh himself. He was far more liberal than his predecessors in bestowing Roman citizenship on subject peoples. To keep the city population supplied with cheap food, he subsidized and insured grain ships at the cost of the government, and his activity in erecting public works is illustrated by the completion of this magnificent aqueduct. It is a fact of great importance that the early emperors, whatever their private characters, almost uniformly devoted themselves to the public good. Personal service to the empire was their chief title to office and the basis on which successive rulers built up their power. The Forum The city of Rome itself abounds in places and objects of interest more easily reached than the Campania. It requires at least a teaspoonful of information to appreciate the features of Rome, and to those who are mentally equipped, no spot furnishes keener enjoyment than the Forum. An impressive view can be had looking eastward from the capital, one of the seven hills on which the early city sat. It can be seen that the Forum lies in a valley nearly surrounded by hills. In the 10th and 9th centuries BC, these hilltops were occupied by villages, and the valleys between them were marshes. In the 8th century, the villages united to form one city, Rome, and the marshes were gradually drained by means of sewers. The low area became at that time the forum, marketplace of the new city. It is an approximate oblong, on the north side of which one of the kings marked off a space, the comitium, assembly place, in which all the citizens met to vote on questions of public importance. Adjoining the comitium was the senate house, king, afterward two consuls, senate, and popular assembly constituted the government. The forum was therefore the political center of Rome, and from this circumstance it derives all its interest. When one reflects that for nearly five centuries after the downfall of the kings, 509 to 27 BC, Rome was a republic, that during that time she conquered and organized in her empire practically the whole Mediterranean basin, 
we begin to understand that this spot must have been the scene of stupendous political conflicts, the birthplace of far-reaching legislative and administrative measures. Here worked the brain of the best organized and most enduring empire the world has known. Cloaca Maxima An essential feature of the Roman government was religion which the Senate and magistrates well knew how to operate for practical ends. It is not surprising, therefore, to find about the Forum the ruins of many temples. There is the Temple of Saturn, now only a group of columns. It rests on an unusually high foundation. Within this basement were chambers which contained the treasury of the state. It was largely by the control of the treasury that the Senate long maintained its political supremacy. A few steps from the temple is the pavement of a great oblong building, of whose superstructure there are but scant remains. This was the Basilica Julia, erected by Julius Caesar and rebuilt after a destructive fire by Augustus. A basilica was used for law courts, and for business purposes. The style of building was borrowed from Greece, but the architect at Rome wrought in the spirit of her people. He left the exterior plain and unattractive to devote his whole attention to the interior. It is essentially a vast hall with aisles separated from nave by a row of archpiers in this case, in other basilicas by colonnades. The designer molded, as it were, the interior space so as to express in the language of art the grandeur of the empire, and in the severe harmony of the lines, the orderliness and symmetry of Roman law. No other architectural type so well embodied the imperial idea. Of the other buildings connected with the Forum, the most conspicuous is the Temple of Castor and Pollux, just beyond the Basilica Julia. The ruins consist of three slender columns standing on a high foundation and supporting a fragment of the entablature. These remains belong to the reconstruction of the temple under Augustus. The worship of the twin gods Castor and Pollux patrons of cavalry, had been introduced from Greece into Rome in the early Republic. The front porch of the temple often served as a platform for party leaders while addressing the crowd in the Forum. On such occasions it sometimes became the center of violent political conflicts out of keeping with the beauty of the surroundings. This temple and nearly all others at Rome are of the Corinthian order of architecture, distinguished by the capital of clustered acanthus leaves surmounting the graceful fluted column. It is one of the best of its class, and the three columns with their entablature form the most beautiful architectural fragment still preserved from classical Rome. The present level of the Forum is many feet lower than that of its immediate surroundings. During the three thousand years that separate us from the beginnings of the city, 
the valleys have been gradually filling through the accumulation of debris of ruined buildings the washings of earth from the surrounding hills and various other means recently scholars have excavated nearly the whole forum down to the earliest level laying bare the lower parts of buildings the earlier pavements altars a primeval cemetery and many other objects nearly everything found has been identified and clothed in the historical imagination with the associations of the time when it had a purpose and a meaning but the spot once the abode of intense life is now still it seems the burial place of a dead society and government state officials keep drowsy guard over the remains tourist and scholar walk undisturbed through the sepulchre of a mighty empire their senses awakened to the ancient life only by the rush of waters through the subterranean cloaca maxima and to the life of our day by the roses geraniums and wild italian flowers that grow luxuriantly wherever a bit of soil is left the arch of titus beyond the forum and on the summit of the ridge known as the velia is the arch of titus we can read the inscription senatus populusque romanus divo tito divi vespasiani f vespasiano augusto the senate and people of rome dedicated this arch to the deified titus vespasianus augustus son of the deified vespasianus consider this inscription both the greeks and the romans propitiated the spirits of the dead with sacrifice and prayer the founder of a city or any specially great benefactor of the community they venerated after death as a hero a being intermediate in dignity and power between man and the gods the Colosseum from the north it was with this idea that the senate by decree deified more strictly heroized a deceased emperor who seemed to that body to have been a specially worthy ruler thus they had deified vespasian and after him his son and successor titus this arch therefore was dedicated by the senate and people to the memory of emperor titus after his death a monument of the kind commemorated a victory so great as to entitle the general to a triumph a procession of the victorious commander and his army along the sacred way past the forum and up the capitol to the temple of jupiter on the summit the spoils of war were carried in the procession while games and other festivities rejoiced the hearts of the populace this arch is a memorial of the war waged by titus against the jews in which he besieged and destroyed jerusalem their holy city 
during the conflict the jews resisted with superhuman energy and when everything was lost they killed one another and their wives and children as the lot determined in order not to be slaves the fame of their heroism is as imperishable as the military renown of the conqueror the triumphal arch accordingly represents the slaughter of innocent people the crushing of national liberty the brutal sacking of cities the merciless sale of captives into slavery while casting this gloomy shadow it reflects on the sunlit side the glory of victory and the extension and solidification of roman power the Colosseum. this immense amphitheater was built by vespasian and dedicated by titus it is a gigantic oval four stories in height from the north side which is still nearly intact the first three stories present simply a series of arcades the fourth story is a closed wall four entrances lead into the arena seventy-six others into vaulted corridors whence the spectators passed up various stairways to their seats which extended in tiers from near the floor to the top of the highest story the seats have disappeared but careful measurement places the capacity at forty-five thousand with standing room for perhaps five thousand more hidden from view were the cages of wild beasts and the cells for gladiators and beneath the arena were machines for elevating animals to the surface interior of the Colosseum on a fete day the dedication in eighty a d was accompanied with games lasting through a hundred days a roman game involved a contest and those offered by titus at the dedication included the baiting and slaughter of savage beasts fights of gladiators and a sham naval battle the arena being flooded for the purpose it is difficult to understand how a ruler such as titus who abhorred bloodshed and would condemn no man to death during his administration provided the city populace with this bloody brutalizing sport but love of popularity has always been a powerful motive among men and some emperors and patriotic citizens tried to excuse the sport on the foolish supposition that it fostered the military spirit as a matter of fact the populace who attended these shows grew more and more unwilling and unfit to defend their country and homes against invading barbarians the basilica julia a drawing showing the reconstructed interior of this building which formerly stood in the forum it was not till some years after titus that the spectators began to experience a new kind of pleasure in seeing christians thrown living to the wild beasts of the arena many thus perished as witnesses of a better faith and a higher morality when however christianity triumphed and became the religion of the empire an effort was instituted first by constantine to stop the degrading shows 
but the people were so frantically addicted to them that they were scarcely abated by government edicts till emperor honorius succeeded in abolishing gladiatorial fights in 404 long afterward the hunting of wild beasts continued the massive structure remained scarcely impaired by time till about the middle of the fourteenth century when the greater part of the southern half collapsed probably through an earthquake the ruin piled up a mountain of stone which for the next five centuries served the roman nobles as a quarry the grandeur of the Colosseum. Some of the most imposing palaces which lend dignity to the modern city have been built with this material. Although fully half the stone has been thus removed, the part of the structure which still remains is the most impressive of all the ruins of the city, a monument of the grandeur and of the moral degradation of Rome. It is an especially rich experience to visit the Colosseum by moonlight, where, seated on a stone at the edge of the arena, we may, in imagination, with the aid of the tranquil light, reconstruct the vast interior and repeople it with a Roman multitude breathlessly awaiting the opening of the games or exulting over the triumph of a popular favorite. On certain nights, the municipal authorities illuminate the interior with colored lights, whose weird spell awakens the imagination to sights of bloody conflict amid a yelling, savage mob. The Tomb of Hadrian The most versatile, and perhaps the ablest of all the emperors, an artist, poet, philosopher, general, and statesman, was Hadrian. Two-thirds of his reign of twenty-one years, 117 through 138 A.D., he devoted to travel throughout his vast empire. The object of these journeys was not, like that of our presidents, to explain policies and secure votes for re-election to a second term, for the emperor's lease of power was lifelong. His purpose was rather to discover and meet the needs of his people. We find him accordingly improving the organization, equipments, and discipline of the army, fortifying exposed points of the frontier, negotiating treaties of alliance with border states, building roads, providing the cities he visited with temples, theaters, and aqueducts, carefully overseeing the complex system of administrative offices or finding relaxation in conversation with architects, authors, and philosophers. Emperor Hadrian. In the period of the decline, the tomb was converted into a fortress, and this character it has retained to the present day. During the Middle Ages and early modern times, a period of 1,500 years, it was the center of nearly all the factional strife and of the civil and foreign wars that raged in and about the city. During this time, it experienced the greatest changes in appearance by the removal of decorations and facings 
and the substitution of ramparts, turrets, and other elements of military defense. Its present name, Castle of Sant'Angelo, was given it in the time of Pope Gregory the Great. The story is told that in 590, when leading a procession to St. Peter's in an attempt to check by prayer a dreadful pestilence, quote, as he was crossing the bridge, even while the people were falling dead around him, he looked up at the mausoleum and saw an angel on its summit sheathing a bloody sword, while a choir of angels around chanted with celestial voices the anthem since adopted by the church in her vesper service. End quote. In commemoration of the miracle, a statue of the holy angel Michael stands on the summit with wings outspread. This castle unites the memories of nearly 2,000 past years with the living present. Having stood as a fitting tomb of a noble emperor and again as the storm center of divisional strife, let it bide henceforth as a durable monument of Italian unity and freedom. The Ruins of Rome The Campagna 1. The Roman Campagna was the cradle of a mighty race. How did the little handful of men who founded Rome and their descendants become masters of the world? Levy, the great Roman historian, believes it was due to the location of the city of Rome. Not without reason, he says, did gods and men choose this site for Rome, healthy hills, a river equally adapted for inland and maritime trade, the sea not too far distant, a site in the middle of the peninsula, made, as it were, on purpose to allow Rome to become the greatest city in the world. However healthy the climate of the Campania may have been in those times, today it is about the most unhealthy in the world. It is a district containing a great many closed valleys and depressions in the soil, without outlet for the waters that accumulate. Natural watercourses are impeded, under the topsoil are marl and stiff clay, which hold the water after it has filtered through the soil and let it ooze out to the lower parts of the country, where it is mixed with rotting vegetable matter. Barriers of hills prevent movement of the air. Malaria runs rampant. But this could not have been so formerly. In the early history of the Campania, towns were scattered over its surface. Later, these towns disappeared, and the great estates, worked by crowds of slaves, occupied the land. Then the great villas, whose ruins now strew the ground everywhere in the neighborhood of Rome, were built. The ancient Roman nobility lived in great numbers in the very places now found so deadly. Their summer homes were placed but all through the country. Huge aqueducts supplied Rome with water and irrigated the farms on the Campania. 
These are the most conspicuous ruins on the Campania today. The Gothic army at the siege of Rome in 536 destroyed nearly all the aqueducts, and later on the great country seats were demolished. Six miles from Rome, on the Flaminian road, at the spot now called the Prima Porta, Empress Livia had a country house, which has been excavated. It was well decorated and comfortable. There were found in the house a statue of Emperor Augustus and the busts of several members of the royal family. The ruins of many tombs are found on the Campania. Roman family vaults contained a funeral banquet hall on a level with the road and the crypt below where the ashes were kept in urns or the bodies laid to rest in sarcophagi. The sites of the cities of Veii, Fidene, and Gabi, once the rivals and equals of Rome, are now almost deserted. In seacoast towns of Ardea, Laurentum, Lavinium, and Ostia, at one time well populated, are practically empty. The inhabitants are haggard and fever-stricken. The children are gaunt, hollow-cheeked, and sallow in complexion. Men who work there in the fields fear to pass the night in the country because of the fever. They return to Rome every evening. Forsaken towers and buildings which stand rotting everywhere about the Campania tell the same story of a pestilence-stricken district. Now, for the most part, only foxes, bears, and other wild animals tenant the ragged pastures and wild jungles of the Campania. The Capitoline Hill 2. When Rome was founded by Romulus and his handful of comrades, they soon saw that if the city was to grow and prosper, they would need wives. How to get them was the question. Near Rome was a nation called the Sabines. So the Romans enticed the women of this nation to the new city and kept them there. It is recorded that these early Romans were pretty fine-looking men and that the efforts of the Sabine women to escape were not very strenuous. But naturally the Sabine men were not pleased to be thus deprived of their wives, they started the war with Rome and besieged the city. The Capitoline Hill was the most important of the seven hills on which Rome was built. So Romulus fortified it strongly and gave it into the care of one of his bravest generals, Tarpeius. But Romulus reckoned without Tarpeia, the daughter of Tarpeius. The Sabine men had a custom of wearing heavy gold and silver bracelets, on their left arms. Tarpeia saw these and was dazzled by them. She planned to get possession of them all. One night she crept down to the gate and promised the leader of the Sabins that she would open it and give up the hill to them if they would give her what they wore on their left arms. The Sabins agreed to this and Tarpeia opened the gate. The Sabins seemed to have been brave, honorable men, and although they believed all was fair in war, yet they hated a traitor. 
Besides the bracelets, they carried their shields on their left arms, so they kept their promise to Darpea by throwing these shields on the girl and crushing her to death. The heel was afterwards spoken of as Mons Tarpeus, meaning the heel of Tarpeia. It was after this traitorous girl also that the rock from which the traitors were hurled was named the Tarpeian Rock. The Sabins held Capitoline Hill for a time, but finally decided to unite with the Romans, and the women were divided between the two nations by lot. The capital was, in reality, that part of Capitoline Hill occupied by the Temple of Jupiter, but included the Piazza del Campidoglio, with the palaces that face it on three sides. In this depression was situated the Asylum of Romulus. In the early days of Rome, the founders wished to attract people to settle there, and they issued invitations to all neighboring cities, but not many accepted. So Romulus conceived the brilliant idea of receiving all fugitives from other towns as citizens of Rome and guaranteeing them protection. For this purpose, he converted the depression in Capitoline Hill into a place of refuge or asylum. In this way, the new city was peopled. Capitoline Hill has been the scene of many historical events. In 1251, during the senatorship of Brancaleone, who destroyed 140 private castles in Rome, the capital was besieged and taken by the partisans of the Pope and the nobility. Petrarch was crowned poet laureate there in 1341. The entire Capitoline Hill is undermined with large and excessive artificial caverns. These caverns are apparently ancient and mostly the work of medieval quarrymen. The Roman Forum 3. So many statues crowded the streets of the Forum at one time that Rome was said to have two equal populations, one in flesh and blood, the other in bronze and marble. This was almost literally true. The Forum was the center of Rome. It was the political and business meeting ground of the citizens. Situated in the valley between the seven hills of the city, it was the common property of the people of all the hills. So, when anyone wanted to erect a statue or a gallows, a temple or a shop, he put it in the forum. Naturally, the forum became overcrowded. The forum Romanum was in the shape of an oblong, 690 feet long and 240 feet wide. It does not seem to be this large, however, since the space is so taken up by monuments. In the beginning, the Forum was the marshy battlefield of the early inhabitants of the Capitoline and Palatine hills. When the ground was drained by great ditches, it became, under a united rule, the most convenient place for political meetings, for business affairs, for the pageants of rich men's funerals, for plays, and for gladiatorial games. For these purposes, a central space, though but a small one, 
was kept clear of buildings. Gradually even this space became filled with the ever-growing crowd of statues and other honorary monuments. Awnings were probably spread over this central space of the forum, since square holes are found in the pavement which held masts on which the awnings could be suspended. Beneath the pavement also a network of passages was discovered. These passages were three feet below the surface and eight feet high and five wide. They were probably used for scenic purposes when games and plays were given in the forum. The rostra stood in the forum. This was a platform from which speakers addressed the people. It was decorated with the prows of captured ships. Thus the platform was called the rostra, or beaks. There is a story that one night in 362 A.D. a monstrous chasm opened in the Forum. The Romans were dumbfounded. The chasm must be closed before business could go on. The oracles said that the gulf would never close until Rome's most valuable possession had been thrown into it. What was the most valuable possession of Rome? Some said one thing, some another. Then Marcus Curtius, a young man of noble family, announcing that nothing was more precious to Rome than her sons, leaped fully armed and on horseback into the chasm. The gulf closed immediately. Later, the spot was covered by a marsh called Lake Curtius, and later still, when the marsh had been drained, an enclosed space containing an altar marked the place. Once the center of the civilized world, the heart of the Roman Empire, the Forum is now but a mass of crumbling ruins, and the walls that long ago looked down upon streets crowded with the rulers of the world now see only the occasional tourist. The Colosseum Fall Quote, while stands the Coliseum, Rome shall stand. When falls the Coliseum, Rome shall fall. End quote. Thus ran the ancient prophecy made by two English pilgrims to Rome in the eighth century. And although only about one third of the original Colosseum is left, Rome still stands, not in its former power and majesty, however. The Colosseum is the amphitheater where the Romans held gladiatorial fights. Later they added to the program the slaughter of Christians by wild beasts. A lion or tiger was starved for a week or so and then turned loose on a crowd of naked Christians in the arena. These spectacles were a source of great amusement to the Romans. Fifty thousand people could be seated in the Colosseum. The lowest seats were the most honorable, the upper galleries being occupied by the lower classes, where the seats were often free. An awning was stretched over the seats, and to provide further for the comfort of the audience, jets of water cooled the air and fragrant perfumes scented it. 
The Colosseum was oval in shape and had four tiers of seats surrounding the arena. Arena means sand in Latin, and as the place where the contests took place was covered with sand to keep the gladiators from slipping in the blood, so it received this name. The arena is about 94 yards long by 54 yards wide. The podium, which was long ago removed, was a raised platform 12 feet high at the base of the seats on which sat the emperor, the senators, and the vestal virgins. Each person on the platform had a throne-like seat. The emperor's was raised above the others and had a canopy over it. When the Colosseum was dedicated in 80 AD by Emperor Titus, there was a celebration that lasted almost 100 days. 5,000 wild animals were slaughtered in the arena. Before the Colosseum was built, the gladiatorial contests were held in the Forum. Vespasian began the construction of the amphitheater in 72 AD. The Flavian amphitheater was the name first given to the building, from the family name Flavium, of the emperors who built it. Earthquakes destroyed the arena and podium in 442 and 580, but it was not until the reign of Justinian in the 6th century that the shedding of human blood ended. A bullfight was held in the building as late as 1332. The Roman popes and princes used the Colosseum as a place from which to get building material. These barbarous nobles of the Middle Ages treated this historic building shamefully. Passion plays were given in the Colosseum in the 17th century. It was used as a manufacturing place for saltpeter in 1700. Half a century later, Pope Benedict XIV consecrated the building to the memory of the Christian martyrs who had died there. The chief characteristics of the Colosseum are strength and solidity. The historic memories that cluster round its walls of mighty emperors and bloodthirsty mobs, of screams of death or triumph, of gorgeous pageants and heroic martyrdom, combine to render the Colosseum the most imposing ruin in the whole world. The Arch of Titus, 5. Through tiers of crowded seats that flanked their line of march, Titus and Vespasian rode in their triumphal procession in 70 A.D. Jerusalem had been conquered and the temple burned and destroyed. This celebration was called the Triumph, which was given by Rome to all her successful generals on their return from campaigns. It had been a hard task for Titus to conquer rebellious Jerusalem. Oppression and extortion by the Roman rulers had risen to such a height that the Jews were driven at last into desperate resistance to the overwhelming power of Rome. Vespasian was sent by Emperor Nero to subdue them. All Galilee was soon subjugated, and only Jerusalem remained unconquered. 
When Vespasian returned to Rome and became emperor, he sent his son Titus to subdue Jerusalem. Titus arrived upon the heights near Jerusalem and began to besiege the city. He captured the first and second walls, then he built a wall around the city and soon had it in a state of famine. At length all the city was captured but the temple. Here the Jews made their last stand. Titus wished to save the temple, but his soldiers set fire to it and plundered it. A terrible massacre of all the inhabitants of Jerusalem followed. Then the prisoners and spoils were borne to Rome. The next year Titus and Vespasian had their triumph. The Senate and other chief men led the procession. Then came the spoils with persons bearing title boards or placards, from which the spectators might find out the history of all the objects that passed before them. There were silver, gold, and ivory in all kinds of forms, gems set and unset, tapestries of the rarest Babylonian embroidery. There were various foreign animals dressed in gorgeous trappings. But what interested the spectators the most was the large high platforms on which were exhibited parts of the campaign. Models of cities, temples, fortresses, assaulted, captured in ruins or in flames representations of the hostile armies in all the different forms of war then came the models of captured ships priests with bulls for sacrifice followed seven hundred hebrew youths as prisoners marched next then came the spoils from the temple of jerusalem the golden table the golden candlestick and, last of all, the Book of the Law. Emperor Vespasian, followed by Titus, each in a separate chariot, rode next in the procession with Domitian, who was the younger son of Vespasian and consul, on horseback. After them came the soldiers who had been in the war, crowned with laurel leaves and shouting songs of victory. Thus the triumphal procession went along the sacred way. When they came to the temple, Simon, the general of the Hebrews, was put to death according to custom. The leader of the conquered army was always killed at the triumph of the conquering general. The other prisoners were made either gladiators or slaves. After Simon had been put to death, sacrifices were offered to the gods, and all departed to the waiting banquets. The Arch of Titus was built on the sacred way to commemorate this triumph. It was one of the earliest of those twenty-one arches with which Rome was once adorned. The exact date of erection is not known, but it must have been after the death of Titus, for on the ceiling of the vault of the arch Titus is represented as sitting astride an eagle. At the funeral of a Roman emperor an eagle was released, on whose back the soul of the emperor was supposed to mount to heaven, there to dwell among the gods forever. Hadrian's Tomb 6. Emperor Hadrian was a great traveler. He spent the eight years from 119 to 127 AD 
in journeying round the Roman Empire just to get acquainted with the state of the provinces. When he was in England, he built the famous wall that extends from the Solway to the Tyne. He fully deserved the title Father of His Country, which was given him on his return to Rome. Hadrian was also a famous builder. In addition to the great Roman wall in England, he erected many beautiful and expensive structures in Athens and a villa at Tivoli, which was noted for its beauty. But his most famous building is Hadrian's tomb, now called Castle Sant'Angelo, which was constructed in 130 A.D., the last vacant niche in the tomb of Augustus was occupied, and so Hadrian determined to build one for himself and his successors, which should have no rival in the world. Hadrian died before it was finished, but Antoninus Pius, his successor, completed it and buried Hadrian there. Hadrian's tomb is a large circular tower, 230 feet in diameter. It was originally built of Parian marble. Some time in the 5th century, however, it was converted into a fort, and when the Goths under Vitiges besieged it in 537, the defenders tore the statues from their pedestals and hurled them down upon the attackers. Two of these were found during the 17th century in the moat surrounding the tomb. In 590 there was a great plague in Rome. Pope Gregory the Great was leading a procession to St. Peter's Cathedral to pray for deliverance from the pestilence when it is said the destroying angel appeared on the summit of the tomb of Hadrian. The angel was sheathing his sword to signify that the plague was stopped. Since that time the building has been known as the Castle Sant'Angelo. In 610, Pope Boniface IV erected on the summit of the tomb the chapel of St. Angelo Internubis in commemoration of this event. Several statues of the archangel succeeded this. The present one was put there in 1743. Marozia, daughter of Theodora, held the tomb as a fort in the 10th century and had Pope John X suffocated in a dungeon. A few years later, Pope Benedict VI met a similar fate at the hands of Crescenzio, son of Theodora. In the latter part of the 10th century, Crescentius, the consul, had a quarrel with the Pope and seized the fort. He held it bravely against Emperor Otto III, who had marched into Rome in defense of the Pope. Emperor Hadrian was an able military leader and a just and wise civil ruler. His full name was Publius Aelius Hadrianus, and he was born at Rome on January the 24th, 76 A.D., he was such an ardent student of Greek that he was nicknamed Greculus, the Greek. He served in the campaign against the Dacians under his uncle, Emperor Trajan. At the latter's death, he became emperor. Hadrian died at Baiae on July 10, 138. 
His remains were carried to Putioli, from which place they were afterward taken to Rome. End of chapter 13